Serious questions tonight about whether the Russians are using Rudy Giuliani to interfere in the U.S. presidential election. The Russia collusion delusion, this massive hoax that was foisted upon the American people, was bought and paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign. This crisis provides the opportunity for us, as I would say, the opportunity to do things that you could not do before. Uh, never waste a good crisis. In 1944, the movie Gaslight came out, a noir classic of sorts starring Ingrid Bergman, who plays a young woman well on her way to opera stardom when she falls in love with a character played by Charles Boyle. The two marry, but Ingrid's character quickly becomes plagued by odd situations that slowly drive her mad. At first, she starts recognizing small things, missing pictures, strange noises, and most importantly, a small gaslight that strangely dims over time seemingly on its own. By virtue of the name, you can probably guess that it is her husband doing these things to manipulate her and to slowly drive her to insanity by bending the truth incrementally. The overall goal of this film is to show what real gas lighting looks like, and it's incredibly important that we understand it in the present because the sheep are being gaslit and only free thinkers can stop it. So know this, gaslighting looks like intentional and incremental lying in order to manipulate the perception of reality. You can see this in the modern day abortion industry as we call a baby a fetus and then slowly move to calling it a choice. You can see it in the lie that gender is a construct and that men can be women. The proponents of this nonsense hope you never ask, hey, so if gender really is a construct, why do you need plastic surgery to correct it exactly? And of course, there's Black Lives Matter, a statement so obvious that it demands that we ask, why should we even have to say it? Like saying air is good and water is helpful, why should we have to be forced to say something that is common knowledge to everyone? Especially when the ones demanding that we say it are a bunch of Marxists bent upon the destruction of the nuclear family. Put your mother in the straight jacket, you punk. Don't get it twisted. Gaslighting is not presenting alternative facts or diverging from the mainstream. In fact, more often than not, it is required of independent thinkers that we do that. While the mainstream wishes to designate any form of dissent as misinformation, we should demand a world where the truth speaks for itself, whether it's mainstream or not. And it's incredibly important that we understand what gaslighting looks like, especially in the present, where it seems that lies are being peddled like water more than they were in the past. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? That's why today I'm going to take you through stories like this. The famous Hillsong New York City pastor Carl Lentz just spoke out for the first time since he was fired from his position because of multiple affairs. And the question comes, Will he blame his insufferable narcissism for his downfall, or maybe the fact that celebrity culture doesn't mix well with church? Or will he just blame other people? You can probably guess what he does. And then we'll look at a story about the NAACP issuing a travel warning for people going to the state of Florida this summer. Why? Well, because apparently they are also in the business of gaslighting, and uh, it's an election year, so they need to do something to attack Ron DeSantis. And then finally, we'll look at the life and the legacy of Tim Keller, the well-known pastor who just passed away from pancreatic cancer. In the latter part of his life, he made some very troubling statements, but what can we make of it and what can we learn from it most importantly to help us become truly independent thinkers? We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker.
Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and to check out today's show's sponsor, our friends over at Element Home Loans. Now, there's a bunch of gimmicks in the mortgage business, especially today when mortgage rates are a little bit higher than they were in the past. And one of those gimmicks is don't get your credit pulled too much by getting pre-approved because that will lower your credit score. Now, why is that a lie? Because it would take you just about forever for that to finally happen. And it's a gimmick that these dishonest mortgage companies use because they just don't want you shopping around to see if you can find a better rate or better customer service. But I assure you, you definitely can by going to kbmtg.com today. Not only can you shop and see what their interest rate looks like and see if you can get a better rate with them, but you can also shop around to see some of the programs that they have, especially programs like the refinancing program that they have to help you get a lower rate. Even if you have a high rate today, maybe you can refinance and do it totally for free in the future by going to the Kevin Blair team. But in order to see everything that they can help you do, you need to go to kbmtg.com today. And when you do so, let them know that Indie Thinkers sent you. If there is a group of people in the present who should not be strangers to gaslighting, it is Christians. Now, I want this segment to be for for Christians, but also more broadly for the general public. Because I think if you're an honest, at least intellectually honest person, you'll, you'll agree with this statement, that there is a double standard in society, specifically in the media, when it comes to Christianity. Just today, if you go on Google and you look at where their logo is in the header there, they'll have some picture of some LGBTQ activist or uh, some other kind of left-leaning intersectional activist. But the question comes, have you ever seen a Christian saint celebrated in that space, maybe a Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was responsible for trying to assassinate Hitler because he felt like it was his moral duty to try to get rid of such an evil man. Have you ever seen any saint, any Christian celebrated in that space? And the answer is no. And so we are very used to, as Christians, gaslighting in the public and the double standard that is present in the public when it comes to Christianity. The media very often is used as a tool to try to dismantle and deconstruct the faith, even though it is the very thing that provided so much of the great things that we experience here in the American West. So while the media wishes to chisel away at the foundation underneath their feet, we as Christians stand back and ask why. And that is no different um, here in the case with this documentary about famous Hillsong New York City pastor Carl Lentz. I was very anxious about seeing this documentary because it marks the first time that Carl has spoken out since he was fired and since his multiple affairs were exposed. Now, I thought that this would be interesting just to look at kind of the institution of Hillsong Church and what was going on there and maybe see some things that I hadn't seen before. But more importantly, I was interested in hearing from Carl. Would we see kind of the contrition about what got him in the situation that he was in? Would we see some genuine, some genuine, you know, self-reflection about his actions and that kind of thing? Or would we see essentially just a car crash, just one big, disgusting, ugly event that you kind of can't keep your eyes off of? And that's essentially what I walked away with this documentary thinking, is that it was exactly a car crash. And I kind of expected that, but I didn't quite expect it to be as bad as it was. So, you know, when you're driving and you see a car crash, you don't want to look too much at the spectacle on the side of the road, but your eyes are strangely drawn, let's be honest, to what's going on and is everybody okay over there. But, um, but, but unlike most of the car crashes you see, they don't, the car doesn't you know, explode while you're watching and driving by. And that's what happened here in this car crash. So it went from 
it went from bad to worse with this documentary. And, and it started with this. And I want to kind of pull back and give you the 50,000-foot view and kind of drill down a little bit further into some of the specifics of it. But, but I, I walked away with just this general sense of frustration that I, as an independent YouTuber, seem to have more journalistic integrity than much of the mainstream media. It's really frustrating that I do the vast majority of this podcast on my own editing, producing. I, I have some really phenomenal help in sourcing stories, but but by and large, it's up to me to try to curate these stories and to try to form them and to try to then produce them into coherent ideas on this podcast. And I have to try to source and back up what I'm saying as much as I possibly can. But then to watch this documentary about Hillsong, and by the way, if I didn't mention at the beginning, this is the second Hillsong documentary since this Carl Lentz thing was happening. This is the uh, this is called The Secrets of Hillsong. And, um, and to watch this documentary was really frustrating to hear all these baseless accusations thrown out against the church and that church in particular, uh, but more broadly the church, uh, to hear it thrown out without the kind of sourcing and backing that is necessary for the kinds of accusations that were being made. It was really frustrating to watch that. So let me give you a for instance so I don't do exactly what the people in this documentary did. Let me give you some examples of exactly how this took place. So for instance, we are told that Hillsong is a Pentecostal church, which is true, and that Pentecostals are somehow strangely and innately political. And that is because Pentecostals are largely, if not um, entirely pro-life, and that makes them political, not makes them people that don't believe in murder. And then the fact that 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump, so that means that Pentecostals are deeply political. So there's a lot you could say about that, but suffice to say, just because somebody doesn't believe that you should murder a child doesn't necessarily make them political. And the fact that they voted for Trump might actually have something to do with that. So there's no nuance given to this assertion that Pentecostals are innately political. There's some right-wing extremist group is kind of the intention here. There's no nuance given to it in this sense, that the reason people voted for Trump, by and large, was because he said something crazy. He said that he would install conservative judges that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, was he right about that? I'll let you answer that for yourself. Not to mention, he was going up against the most radical pro-choice, choice, pro-abort candidate, uh, probably in the history of my lifetime, if not ever, Hillary Clinton. So when people voted for Trump, it wasn't because they were the pro-MAGA insurrection party, it was because they cared about life. And that seems to be a pretty good issue to vote, to vote upon. If there is an issue that we should be voting on uh, as it concerns conservatism as an evangelical, you would think to yourself, murder is probably a pretty good one. So it goes even further than blaming Pentecostals for being innately political, but it also says that the working conditions at Hillsong were basically sweatshop-style conditions. So there's a point in the documentary where some of the Hillsong musicians, and of course, if you know anything about Hillsong, you know that music has really created the buzz and the the momentum that Hillsong has. And so there's a piece where musicians come out and they share their plight of only having a day rate of $180 a day when they went to go play for Carl and other people at Hillsong. Well, unfortunately, I have basic math skills. It was one of the few things that I got from the wonderful public school education system. I have basic math skills. So I went in and plugged in the day rate for these Hillsong musicians. And essentially, anybody that was playing daily and getting that day rate from Hillsong would be making about $45,000 a year. 
Now, that's no great shakes, but it's not it's it's not like Oliver Twist here. It's not it's not the sweatshop. Um, Forty five thousand dollars a year is an okay living in most cities and states in, in America. And by the way, forty five thousand dollars a year for playing a guitar is actually pretty good in my estimation. Now you can probably fill in the blanks with the next couple of things that were illustrated by the documentary. Of course, we get the the constant and incessant LGBTQ whining about the church. Now, get ready, put your seatbelts on, because June is going to be filled with it. But before we even get there, you get the pride parade on the Secrets of Hill song, as we see a guy named Josh Canfield, who is actually a uh, employed, I believe, by Hillsong and was one of their singers and who is a um, out homosexual. And he said this, this will give you kind of a flavor for what uh, kind of accusations were, be, were, were being thrown at Hillsong and more broadly the Christian movement. He said this, my dad would deliver his sermon. He would say that homosexuality is equal to murder. Now, you just have to stop there real quick and ask a question. Um, did your dad really say that? Forgive me, I'm, I'm going to cry foul. I've been in the Christian church for about 22 years now, and I can count on one hand how many times I've heard people equate homosexuality to murder. You're going to have to try to square that circle for me and help me understand how, that's, how that even makes sense. So forgive me, color me skeptical, but I think Josh is actually just flat out lying to us. Now, even if that were true, even if his dad preached that homosexuality is tantamount to murder, you know, again, it boggles the mind how that's true. Um, homosexuality is many things. Uh, murder, I, I, don't, I don't get. But nonetheless, if, if this sermon scarred your life, and your dad really did preach this sermon, I just got to tell you, Josh, as an adult man, that's on you. Uh, you shouldn't let sermons scar your life. There's a thing called YouTube, and you can find a million different sermons. And in fact, you could find a bunch of ones that affirm your uh, sexual preferences if you wanted to. Um, so the fact that that scarred your life is not some kind of indictment against the Christian church. It's more an indictment of you. If that scarred you, I'd love to know what you think about this. The thing that might scar you is the obvious way in which nature condemns your sexual preference, the way in which nature testifies that perhaps you were created to be with a woman. So why do homosexuals to be pretend to be shocked by Christian belief when nature testifies of it, but then more importantly, when Christians have believed these things for thousands of years? We're told in this next kind of line of, of reasoning, which you can probably guess what will come next. After you get the LGBTQ whining, you get the racial grievances. In this next kind of line of reasoning, we're told that the Christian church is just two steps behind everything and that we should have forced equity policies that show diversity. There is no real standard behind any of that. There is no quantifiable way to truly judge diversity. In other words, how diverse is diverse enough? Do you need like 15 black people for every two white people? Or how many Hispanics? How many Asians are we supposed to have in there? I, I know that they come up with these arbitrary standards about what it's supposed to look like. But, but the whole idea of equity at, at the end of the day is not a real policy. It's a totally artificial in, in, its, in its making. So diversity and the cry for diversity is nothing more than a postmodernist, neo-Marxist attempt to try to claim some social justice notoriety for yourself rather than it is to actually make real change. 
what we should all desire for is equality of opportunity and not equality of outcome. That will provide us the opportunity to put the people who are best skilled in the right positions where they need to be. I am less concerned about the color of skin of the people on stage than I am making sure that each and every person had an equal opportunity to vie for the position that they're in. Besides, I remember famous black intellectual, since we want to be intersectional here and claim identity every which way we possibly can, if it helps you to know that a black man said this, Thomas Sowell said, what is your fair share of what you did not earn? The point is, is that if you really want things to be fair and if you really want a world that is best suited for black people and white people, then you don't want diversity quotas. You don't want equity. You want equality because you want your position because you rightfully earned it, not because of the color of your skin. You want to stand up on that stage with the pride and the, the acknowledgement that you deserve to be up there because of who you are and because you earned it. That is the way to truly humanize people, not diversity quotas and equity quotas. Everyone should want to rightfully earn a position, not have it granted to them by the dent of their skin color. Regardless, that's all in episode one, guys. And then in episode two, we finally get to hear from Carl and Laura Lentz about the aftermath of being exposed, um, for Carl being exposed for his affairs. And, and this is what we get. Uh, I didn't know, actually, that Carl had cheated on his wife twice, not only with the girl that was widely publicized by the New York Post and other places, uh, this girl that he met in Central Park, I believe, but also his live-in nanny. Uh, now, some of you may have been familiar with that story, but, but, I, but I was not. And, and I just come away, came away thinking, you know, th they were talking about the fact that this woman, this live-in nanny with them, has her own children. That she lives in Boston or lived in Boston at the time and was taking time away from her family even during Christmas and stuff to spend time with the Lenses rather than being with her own family. And I'm just thinking to myself, you people just, you lack the kind of common sense for me to ever take you seriously. Uh, Carl was kind of like that in his preaching too. But nonetheless, um, uh, so Carl cheated on his wife twice, live in nanny and this girl in Central Park. And uh, the aftermath is Carl takes the blame, and he actually comes out and uh, posts on social media that he's to blame, and really does do, I think, a relatively healthy job of acknowledging his role in all of this stuff. But then, let a little time settle in, and you get Carl Lentz taking the time to kind of really work on his story. And you get this, that it is Brian Houston's fault the fact that sex, he was sexually abused as a kid, and he has some mental health issues, and this is why he cheated on his wife twice. We get none of the fact that celebrity culture and churches are not really, like, they don't really work well together. We get none of the fact that Carl was intoxicated with his own fame and stardom. We get none of that nuanced, thoughtful conversation. We get everybody else's to blame, and I can't believe how they treated us after you treated your wife in this despicable way, and then continue to parade your wife on national, international television while she weeps her heart out because of your foolishness. And the whole time, he still doesn't truly take accountability for himself throughout all of episode two. Now, I know I'm taking a little bit of time here, but I think this is incredibly important for you to see, whether you care about Hillsong or Carl Lentz or anything else. Because the most important takeaway for me, perhaps from this whole documentary, is just simply this. Carl Lentz is being used as a tool. If anything, this documentary proves that the modern American left does not actually have a moral code. Diversity, equity, and inclusion 
is as close as they can get, and it all goes down in flames the moment they get one opportunity to tear down the church. They are all too happy to platform a narcissist, white, male, cisgender sexual abuser as long as it does something more important for them, which is to tear down their first hatred, the church. Any institution that actually has morals must be destroyed by these people because it is a constant reminder of their own hypocrisy. They know that they can't truly ground any of their moral beliefs in a logical framework that actually makes sense. And so the one institution that can, the one place that can actually provide a logical and coherent basis for moral values, the church, must be destroyed so that their own hypocrisy is not displayed. I can only imagine that's why these documentary filmmakers wanted to take a story that could have been really, really well done, could have been very thoughtful, and could have been very introspective and totally destroy that opportunity. They could have looked at Carl Lentz. They could have looked at narcissism and the way in which we love to gaze at our own appearance. But then that would be too close to what the left actually endorses and preaches on a regular basis. Rather, they have to do the one thing, the tired, the hackneyed, the sick thing that the left loves to do, which is tear the church down. And our society, society will continue to suffer as a result of it, as we'll see in our next story, as the NAACP is bent on an agenda to make sure that you don't travel to Florida this summer because they just issued a travel warning. And I know what you're thinking. Are they all of a sudden in charge of Customs and Border Patrol? Um, no, but they think that they have the right to issue travel warnings for BIPOC, you know, black people, indigenous people, and people of color all around the world must be afraid of going to Florida this summer because of Ron DeSantis, or maybe because uh, it's election season, and slowly but surely, especially this week, as they issue this travel warning, Ron DeSantis is expected to announce that he is going to run for president in 2024. According to the AP, civil rights groups warn tourists about Florida in wake of hostile laws. So if it was up to the NAACP, they would have you believe that you need to be careful crossing the border from Georgia into Florida because there is a travel advisory warning now on the state of Florida that if you are a person of color, you could be targeted in the state of Florida by the evil Ron DeSantis. Now, um, I am about to go on a vacation to Florida where um, I will bring two mixed children, my children, with me um, across the border. So I, I guess we're going to have to try to figure out a way to place them in the undercarriage of the vehicle, which will provide, by the way, some respite from, from the noise and the constant question of how long until we get there and the constant stopping for the bathroom. Um, I Ostensibly, I guess, they, they could just go if they're in the undercarriage of the car, no harm, no foul. So maybe the NAACP has a point here, but if you care in humane treatment of your children, um, perhaps we might need to dig in a little bit into the story to kind of see what the big threat in Florida is for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color. What is really going on in Florida that threatens their very existence? Well, if you think it's something totally ridiculous and stupid, you are correct. So this is what the AP goes on to say. The NAACP over the weekend issued a travel advisory for Florida, joining two other civil rights groups in warning potential tourists that recent laws and policies championed by Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida lawmakers are openly hostile toward African-American people of color and LGBTQ individuals. Now, what could they possibly be talking about? What is this law 
that is a threat to their own safety so that they should not travel to Florida. Well, it goes on to tell us. The NAACP, long an advocate for black Americans, if you believe that, I've got some real estate in Florida to sell you. It's basically swampland. Goes on to say, joined the League of United Latin American Citizens, a Latino civil rights organization, and Equality Florida, a gay rights advocacy group, in issuing travel advisories for the Sunshine State, where tourism is one of the state's largest job sectors. The warning approved Saturday by the NAACP Board of Directors tells tourists that before traveling to Florida, they should understand the state of Florida devalues and marginalizes the contributions and the challenges faced by African Americans and other communities of color. Well, that's extraordinary. How does that happen? The NAACP's decision comes after the DeSantis administration in January rejected the College Board's Advanced Placement African American Studies course. DeSantis and Republican lawmakers also have pressed forward with measures that ban state colleges from having programs on diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as critical race theory, and also passed the Stop Woke Act that restricts certain race-based conversations and analysis in schools and businesses. So as you could probably expect from the very beginning, a big fat nothing burger. So Ron DeSantis, the person who is going to threaten your life if you're a black person or Latin person or gay person, simply did this. Said, if you're in third grade and below, we're not having conversations about sex in school. Now, it's the, don't, it's called, it's the so-called don't say gay bill because the media likes to lie. But that's exactly what was in the legislation. Now, if you have a problem with that, then what you have a problem with is not Ron DeSantis. You have a problem with human decency, and you need Jesus, friend. Because anybody, whether you're in the LGBTQIA+, ad infinitum, unicorn, shamrock, rabbit's foot group, or any other group in America, you should be willing to at least intellectually, honestly, consent to the fact that third graders probably don't need to be listening to queer as folk or how to wear my new dress to school. That's that's not the job of third grade teachers. We're talking reading math and we're just done. Like we, we just barely got out of eating glue and we're already trying to talk about anal sex to these kids. I think not. Right. So so let's let's go ahead and push that one to the side. Well, then what about this bill saying you can't teach critical race theory in colleges? Obviously, it's because Ron DeSantis hates black people. And if you go to Disney World this weekend, you better watch out for your life. You better be packing because Ron DeSantis doesn't want race baiting, race lies, race hustling nonsense peddled in the school system in Florida. Now, this bill didn't just pass Ron DeSantis's desk. It also went through the Florida legislature. So apparently... There is this group of right-wing extremists in Florida who think that you should actually be learning actual history and not just critical race theory history. And maybe you should be learning actual facts about race rather than the kind of race-baiting nonsense that you find in white fragility. Sure, if you want to go read that stuff on your own time, feel free. Have fun. But if you're going to actually get a good college education, one that is provided for with state taxpayer-funded money then you may want to be a little bit more careful in the way that you teach people. I think we can all tell really clearly what this is. This is nothing more than an attempt to try to attach Ron DeSantis with a narrative right on the precipice of him announcing that he is going to be a GOP candidate in 2024. 
So he wants to run for president, and the NAACP wants to make sure that they try to tarnish his name and drag him through the mud as much as they possibly can and associate that with his announcement that he is running. That's what this is really all about at the end of the day. There is no real threat to people of color in Florida. There is no real threat um, to, to gay people in Florida. All of this is contrived, and it's election interfering. So for those of you who've watched this show in the past, you understand and you know by now, hopefully, that I don't really believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump in 2020. But I do believe that the election was interfered with. Just as we saw in the Durham report that was just recently released, we saw that the Hillary Clinton campaign in cahoots with the FBI was was actively painting not only a private citizen, but a potential presidential um, candidate was doing their best to try to tarnish that person's name with a bunch of, forgive the pun, trumped up charges that didn't even exist. It was a total lie. It was totally fabricated. And it inundated the media for for months and months and months. And, and it was all contrived by the Hillary Clinton campaign in an attempt to try to not only make sure that the DNC was in her pocket and made sure that Bernie Sanders was not the nominee, but also to try to make sure that the the general election was was tarnished and that she had uh, a little bit more in her favor than she than she actually did with just her policies so she was trying to interfere with that election then and the NAACP is trying to interfere with elections now the only question is is are you going to see through the whiff of their gaslighting and call a spade a spade are you going to be able to see through their lying and not fall for that kind of nonsense? Especially for those of you who are people of color, do not let these people do your thinking for you and do not let them tell you what to believe about this stuff. They are trying to extort you once again and and it's got to stop. And if it's ever going to stop, I think we might need to have some moral reform, which we can find from a little book called The Bible. And we'll take a look at that as we step into our final segment, Bible Study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. Many of you know by now that Tim Keller, a very prominent theologian and Christian pastor, passed away of pancreatic cancer this past Friday. Now, he was a well-known man and had a long-storied career. And I think it's important to take some time to stop and celebrate the careers and the lives of great men and women, especially in the church, because the mainstream media is definitely not going to take the time to do that. So it's important to recognize these people when we have the opportunity to do so. And there's definitely some some good things to celebrate about Tim Keller. But as you have probably seen, if you're familiar with Tim and have seen any posts about his death, that there are those who also want to take this time to do some grave stomping and pay attention to some things who rightfully deserve to have some attention paid to them, because in the latter part of Tim Keller's ministry, he had some really bad takes on some things. And now some of you would say, well, I was calling this for years. Tim Keller was doing this all the way back in blank, blank, blank. Um, now, okay, maybe so, but but I can just say that as far as I could tell, Tim Keller had a pretty um, consistent career throughout his ministry, and then about around the pandemic is when I really started to see him do some things that I don't think were really good for him and have some takes on things that I really disagreed with. But I want to take the time to look at this man's life within the context of the good things that he did, but also being honest about the bad things and trying to reflect as nuanced as possibly about his about his life. But, but I want to pull back for just a moment to say more broadly, I want to do this because of this, and this is for all of us, whether you're Christian or not, is that I see blind ideology 
more often in the present than I have in, in the past. And I want us to try to ward off against that kind of blind ideology. And I think the kind of approach that I'll try to provide here will help, and I'll get to that in a moment. But let me explain what I mean by that. So ideology is essentially, or, or people who are blind ideologues, are essentially people who try to impose an idea or a belief even in places where it doesn't fit. So they're always trying to push an agenda. Now, of course, this is people on the left, like the diversity preachers who constantly want to try to push race into everything even where it doesn't belong. But in fairness, this is also the kind of doctrinal watchdogs on YouTube and other places, and these guys do the same thing. They can be blind ideologues as well, and they do this by trying to shove everybody into categories and sometimes too quickly. For instance, some of these doctrinal watchdogs are the ones who say, hey, if you're not a young earth creationist, if you don't believe that the earth was created in six literal days, well, then you must not believe the Bible. How do we know that you can actually believe in the virgin birth and that you believe in the resurrection if you don't believe in that part of scripture, what makes us think you'll believe in this part of scripture? Ha! Gotcha. Well, perhaps because those two things are totally different is the reason we do. Perhaps because the word day in the Old Testament can be translated a couple of different ways and that you don't have a 24-hour period without the sun and the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. Now, these guys come back and they say, well, God knows what a 24-hour period, and he's the one that wrote the Bible after all. And so the point is, is that they, they take these very ideological takes on things and do so so that they don't have to actually engage in arguments. And so they'll make sure that the person who is not thinking exactly like them on a particular portion of Scripture is quickly equated as heretics. Now, I also think it's funny. Along with that are, is often the, the claim that anybody that's not, uh, that doesn't believe exactly like them can't be Christians. And so often they will say, Catholics, uh, that Catholics aren't Christians. And that's kind of an interesting take for me. So we're to believe that uh, it's like Jesus and then the disciples, the apostles, and then th over a thousand years of Christian history and nobody is a Christian because all you have is Catholics until the great knighted Saint Martin Luther rises up and he's the first Christian since the apostles and then he starts the kind of Protestant movement, which becomes the evangelical movement, which is the only real Christians on the planet. Um, I, I just I just would love to know how you square that circle, and ultimately it's going to push you down further into this, into this thinking where we have to actually judge people based upon what they actually believed, and we have to actually nuance ideas. And so blind ideology, whether it's on the left or on the right, is equally problematic, to use the leftist term. Um, so it's important for us to actually kind of look and drill down into what Tim Keller actually believed. And I think we'll find a more complicated story, but one that helps us come away with a, with a moral that I think is important for all of us to understand. So let's first look at the fact that that uh, Tim Keller, and this is the most problematic thing that he believed, I, I think, it, Tim Keller did not believe in a literal flood. So here's him saying that. I don't believe the earth is young, and I don't believe that, the, I don't think the Bible teaches that. I don't believe in a worldwide flood, I don't think the Bible teaches that. Did creation science, and creation science has two basic pillars. The first is a young earth. They believe that basically the earth happened only a few thousand years ago. And the idea of long, long periods of time is a fiction, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion. And the second thing they believe in is the worldwide flood. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, where I came from, all Christians believe this. Look, look at me. I'm a Christian. I don't believe it. And all you have to do is know that. 
All right, so as you can see, a lot of people have a problem with this, and I think rightfully so. I think this is the most troubling thing that I've heard Tim Keller say, I think, and all of the things I've heard him say that are troubling, and there's some troubling things, as we'll get to more in a moment. But the reason this is troubling is twofold. First of all, uh, there is a lot of science, and there is a lot of external data, uh, and almost all scientists and historians believe that there was some kind of diluvian period in, in history. And it just so happens that the Bible, by the way, kind of happens to express that in the best way. But there's a lot of scientific evidence, a lot of historical data that helps us that helps us come to the conclusion that there probably was a flood that took place that was catastrophic and global in nature. So he's not real well-founded in that way, not to mention... When I say that I'm not a young earth creationist, it's because there are different ways to interpret uh, the words of, of the days being presented and just kind of the facts on the ground, the differences between Genesis 1 and 2 and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think all of that needs to be taken into consideration and needs to be healthily thought through, which we can't necessarily do in this podcast alone. But, uh, but so that's my issue with the flood here, because the flood undoubtedly took place according to the scriptural narrative in the Old Testament, but also things we see in the New Testament. So I think that we need to believe in in the flood. However, I'll go one step further and maybe even take a controversial take, especially for you doctrinal watchdogs out there, and just say this. When you go to heaven, God is not going to ask you if you believed in a literal flood before you can enter into the pearly gates. Um, or if you're Catholic, maybe that's Peter. I don't know. But nonetheless, you're, he's not going to ask you, well, did you believe in the flood? Because that's not really what this is about. What ultimately the flood story is more deeply about is the spiritual lesson that comes from the flood, which is this, that that catastrophic flood to wipe away all unrighteous man from the earth and leave that one righteous guy, Noah, was not enough to truly produce a righteous lineage of people because people are sinful and they desperately need a savior. That's the whole point of that story. Not only from a Christian perspective, but also even if you're Jewish, you could see it that way. That's the narrative of that story. A catastrophic flood to wipe out evil on the earth is not enough because evil is so deep-seated in the heart of every single human being. Sure, Noah was a good man in comparison to those other dude, but he, dudes, but he was still... He was still a man because one generation later, we see that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth the sons of Noah, Ham, is already doing evil things with, uh, that sin against his own father. So the, the whole point is that, is that the moral of the story is what's really important at the end of the day. And Keller believed that. So that's why I think the real problematic take here is the reason Keller doesn't believe in a literal flood. It was to pander to a group of unbelievers who don't believe in the literal flood. Hey, look at me. I don't believe in a literal flood, so it's okay if you don't believe in one either. Well, that's hardly the reason why you shouldn't believe in a literal flood, just because Tim Keller doesn't. We actually need some evidence there. So again, that's the most controversial take, I think, from everything that he has said. But then also we have his words on COVID, and he said this. Last on pandemic period, in NYC early 2020, 9.2% of every person who got COVID died, and 32% of all hospitalized with COVID died. The hospitals were overwhelmed, and Elmhurst body bags were in the street. New York Cityers were not offended that year by restrictions and calls for vaccination. So the idea there is just simply that because of the severity of the uh, of COVID, uh, there were people in New York City who were rightfully concerned and they were taking up a, a rightful position of kind of going along with what the government said. Look at all the death, in other words. Now, I would love to tell you 
that that tweet was sent somewhere kind of like mid-2020, like shortly after two weeks to slow the spread, and that Keller was perceptive enough to kind of look at the facts on the ground and what was going on, but it, but it wasn't actually. It was sent in April of this year. So a little humility in the wake of the CDC lying to us about vaccine efficacy, the decline in education, especially among younger kids who were uh, much less likely to have devastating effects if they got COVID, you know, that would have been good. Or even some introspection on the way the church was co-opted by the director of the NIH, Francis Collins, who at the time um, was seen uh, trying to shut down open dialogue as he was colluding with Anthony Fauci in emails. Now that we know all of this stuff, it would be nice if Keller would say, hey, maybe I was wrong about uh, COVID and, you know, taking the vaccine really isn't the way to love your neighbor and wearing a face mask and doing everything your government tells you. Maybe we need to be a little bit more skeptical about that kind of stuff. So um, suffice to say, he didn't have the greatest take on COVID and, and didn't all the way up until his death. Now, the more important uh, issue was the one of the exclusivity of Christ. So there's been a lot of people who have questioned whether or not uh, Tim Keller really believed in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So here's him speaking to this issue, and I want you to hear it here for yourself. About the millions of right. Muslims, Sikhs, and Jews mm-hmm. who have heard about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Where does your thesis leave them? Where they are right now, that means that if, they, if there's never any change, they don't get Jesus. If he is who he said he is, then long term, they don't have God. Now, throughout this interview, uh, Keller gives a kind of meandering response, but I think I know what he's trying to achieve. He's trying to get into the mindset of a secular group of people whom he's speaking to at this Veritas Forum and trying to help them understand from their perspective why Christianity makes sense. So he's trying to concede some things that they believe and trying to acknowledge those things in the room, and then he's trying to answer those things. So I think that's what he's doing. I think a lot of people misperceived this clip, and in its broader context misperceived what he was actually saying and said that he was kind of waffling on the issue. But I think you just saw right there, at the end of the day, not much waffling there. He's very clear about where he believes that uh, the importance of Jesus Christ is and believing that he is God and why that that's necessary for salvation. Now, then there's some other people who also had some issues with what he had to say about the LGBTQIA plus ad infinitum group. And so here's him being very definitive about what he thinks about that to a group of people who are not sympathetic to his view. So here's that. So the Bible does say uh, sex is for a man and a woman inside marriage to nurture love and commitment in a long-term permanent relationship of marriage, which means polygamy, it means sex outside marriage, and it means homosexuality are considered violations of God's will, but also uh, violations of our own design. So the Bible is actually saying you're missing out if you do those things. So hopefully that clip is pretty self-explanatory so we can move on to the next thing, because the next thing is the... is the more substantive critique of Keller, especially in his latter days, which is that Keller was a Marxist and he was eaten up with critical race theory and he was part of the social justice movement and he influenced people like David Platt and Matt Chandler. I think, by the way, that's very true. He did influence the way that they thought about these things and he did have some pretty flawed ideas. 
but they may not be exactly neo-Marxist, as though he was a true communist believer and wanted to see socialism in, in America. Um, so here's John Harris speaking to another podcaster about kind of the racial views of uh, Tim Keller, and here's what they had to say about him. That he seemed to have a peculiar fascination with Karl Marx. Um, is that true? And, and what and what did that look like? What what did he? Was there anything he disagreed with Marx over, or, or what? It, what drew him into Karl Marx? And where do you see that? In, in whether it be his writings or his preaching, or uh, where, where did you where did you get that from? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd use the word fascination. Uh, he okay. He then I, I um, use the word fascination. Well, you know, <laughs> sorry. I, well. I, he, he might, he, he may have a fascination. He certainly has a fascination, I would say with like new left thinkers, but I think that's just because of the, the world he grew up in. He um, came, you know, at Bucknell university or Bucknell college. Um, you know, he was involved with the more, the activist students. And then, you know, he, he gets involved with hearing the Tom Skinner thing that changes his life. And then uh, Edward uh, Elward Ellis, when he's in seminary, basically tells him that you, he doesn't use the term, but it's the same concept. You have white privilege and Keller accepts that. And then um, Harvey Kahn gives him the hermeneutical spiral, which is basically a, it, it, they'll, they'll claim it's not postmodern, but it, it's subjective. It's a subjective way of reading a scripture. It's the same way liberation theologians read the Bible it, pretty much um, this kind of reader response uh, way of looking at it. So like Keller, these are his influences. And then you see in his writings, you, you can tell he reads a lot of, um, he reads Foucault. If there's a, honestly, if there's an obsession he has or a fascination, I think it's Foucault. He talks about Foucault in some sermons quite a bit. Uh, French. Yeah. Uh, Foucault. Yeah, Mikhail Foucault, or some people will say Michel Foucault. I always get, whenever I say Mikhail, people, uh, they, they write me and say, it's Michel, but uh, it depends, I guess, who you're talking to. Let me help you out just a moment. It's Michelle and anybody who says Michael has no idea what they're talking about, but feel free to proceed. Um, Foucault was a uh, French um, deconstructionist, a postmodern thinker. Now here to answer that accusation that Keller was fascinated by Foucault is none other than Keller himself speaking about a Christian book that critiques Foucault. So listen. Here is a, this is a, um, a book it's entitled Michel Foucault. And Foucault, along with Karl Marx, is probably one of the most uh, important thinkers affecting progressive, secular ways of thinking today in America. And uh, Christopher Watkin wrote this. It's uh, remarkable because Watkin is a strong Christian and he gives you a very strong biblical critique of Foucault, but he also summarizes his views in a way that's extraordinarily helpful. And I just don't think there's anything quite like this. Uh, can um, I ask a question? Yeah. You're, his, his bottom line, though, is that Foucault well, is it's not, it's not, he's not endorsing Foucault's thought. He's, no, it's a Christian. He's it's a Christian, criticizing this is, Foucault's this, thought. This is a Christian critique of culture. Okay, well, critique means criticize. Yes, in other words, okay, he, in, the end, sure. he's gonna, he, in the end, he's giving a Christian critique, but it's an appreciative Does he critique. also criticize Marx as well? Uh, he doesn't, yeah, a little bit. Well, see, Foucault was a critic of Marx. Okay. And yet, in the end, uh, as Watkin points out, I think, is Foucault in many ways accepted a lot of what Marx said. Uh -huh. So it's a critique of Marx and Foucault, ultimately. So anyone who is unhappy with Foucault and Marx's 
um, influence on our culture should read that book yes, to see. Be, yes, because what you're what mostly okay. mostly Foucault and Marx are just vilified without understanding really what they taught. And if you don't understand what they taught, you can just you can condemn them. That's terrible. But you really don't understand how it's influencing culture, so you don't even really know what to look for. Keller had no love for Foucault and wasn't fascinated by Foucault. If he talked about him, it was just so that he could engage in these ideas because they were prominent in the culture, but there was a need for a Christian critique of Foucault. So... I didn't really have the time or the opportunity to dig into everything that Tim Keller has ever said. So you can trust that there will be some barking dogs out there who will say, yes, but what about this? And yes, but what about this? But I think an, what I've shown you is enough to kind of summarize down and reduce down a, a simple takeaway that we can take away from Tim Keller, but also more largely we can take away from this kind of whole subject of how do we truly have discernment? How do we keep from being gaslit? And here's what I would say. Don't be a barking dog. A dog that barks at every single car that comes into the driveway is not being discerning, they're being annoying. And the problem with being annoying is that people learn not to take you seriously. And that's a problem. If you want your voice to matter, I would highly suggest that you be mindful and thoughtful about what cars you are barking at. I'm not saying don't bark, bark, but make sure you're barking at the right cars. And then the final thing, and probably the most important thing, is that barking dogs are just simply lazy. What I mean by that is this, is the, the kind of Andy Stanley approach to the culture war is just simply lazy. He says, we're not in it to win it, and we don't want to alienate people in the midst of the culture war, so don't be worried about winning it. Just love people is kind of the idea from Andy Stanley. Well, of course, how lazy of an approach is that? Because there are definitely some things in the culture war that we better be serious as Christians about winning. Abortion might be one of them. The gender mutilation of children might also be another one. If you actually care about people, then you better be serious about winning. So that kind of lazy approach from Andy Stanley is the same kind of lazy approach that just wishes to paint with a broad brush and shove people like Tim Keller over in the corner as apostate and a heretic and somebody that you don't need to listen to. I'm not so sure that that's the most thoughtful take. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that that kind of dismissiveness actually just keeps you from actually engaging in people thoughtfully. It's lazy because now you don't have to take their arguments seriously and you don't have to hear where they're coming from. You don't have to question their ideas. You don't have to nuance what they're actually saying. You can just throw them in the heretic camp and then walk along your merry way. And the problem with that is this is that Christians have been doing that for far too long. Because we haven't been engaging, engaging effectively and thoughtfully, we're losing the culture. If you don't realize that by now, then you are just not paying attention. Or you just don't care. So yes, there's balance in all of these things, but don't just simply be lazy and not willing to engage with other people's ideas. To simply paint with a broad brush Tim Keller and say this man was apostate or it's unfortunate that he gave in in all of these ways, I think is not charitable enough. Now, sure, you can accuse me of being too charitable in this podcast to Tim Keller, and maybe I'll take that uh, into account. But I will just say this, that the more actively discerning we can be about these kind of things to make sure that we're parsing ideas and thinking thoughtfully about them, the better off we can be. 
I don't want big tent Christianity like Christianity today wants. I don't want that. What I'd rather have this is a holy church that makes enough room for people like the thief on the cross to make sure that they enter in to the eternal paradise of our Father. So I want a healthy church, and I want a good church. I want a church that wins the culture war, and I want a church that stands for the right things and stands up for the things that matter most, rather than barking at every car. Now, it's all the time we have for today. Hopefully that was helpful to you. If you like what you heard, I'd love to hear from you down in the comments section below. Thank you for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and to go with God. Thank you.